conclusion of our journey into medieval art, textiles and embroidery. But not quite. Today I want to take a quick look at the types of stitches used throughout this time, as well as to recap on just how far we've come in this fascinating journey into stitch and the art of the needle. But before we leave this era, I want to feature two more areas of research deserving their very own episodes, Opus Anglicanum and the Bayer Tapestry. Both are so rich in history. One records it, the other glorifies the level of artistic ability English embroidery enjoyed at this time. It was without peer and was seen as the pinnacle of art in medieval times. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing, ambrosial world of stitch, history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. I'm learning so much as I research these podcasts and what I find fascinating is that much of what occurred during the medieval period was so innovative, contemporary and original. Abstraction and highly stylized design was alive and well here, with ideas and techniques travelling the world, coalescing and leading to much of what is still done to this very day. What an amazing story, art, embroidery and textiles make. So, onto the types of stitches that were in general use during the medieval period. The DMC website groups stitches into four simple categories, each offering a different effect and use for embroidery. They are outline, oh, that's pretty self-explanatory, where the elements of the design are outlined in stitch. Border, used to secure edges and to add textural dimension. Detached, used to create decorative details or in a mass to fill in open areas. And lastly, filling, used to create shading or simply to fill a shape. This was a time for stylistically simplified motives using solid colours along with quantities of fill and outline, outline stitching which were used on clothing and accessories such as the outer layers of garments. In other words, the clothes that showed such as hoods, cloaks, mantles, belts, purses, veils, caps, gloves and shoes. Necklines, cuffs and hems routinely had their edges embellished with embroidery and occasionally the seams as well, with orphreys or bands of embroidery often applicate onto the hems, necklines and sleeves of garments. 
powdering was also used, whereby appliqued and embroidered motives were strewn fairly evenly across the fabric field. A clever and fairly simple way of enlivening a simple, solid fabric. As an example of the richness of medieval embroidery designs used amongst the highest classes, Lisa Monas in her book Merchants, Princes and Painters cites Four artists spent 24 days drawing embroidery designs for matching sets of clothing for Richard II and his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, to wear to the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin in 1386. These included white hearts or stags worked in pearls, gold and silver thread and coloured silk placed on red velvet. The artists received better payment than the embroiderers. And this finished work must have been a truly awesome spectacle to behold, which was exactly its purpose. Now, if you're wondering why little or no embroidery appears or is spoken about on garments for the common folk in England, let's not forget Edward III's 1363 sumptuary laws forbidding embroidery on clothing for anyone below the level of an esquire, unless they had an income of at least £100 a year. And that was a huge sum of money in those times. Fortunately, Richard II, reigning from 1377 to 1399, overlooked most of these sumptuary laws, resulting in an explosion of embroidery for personal use and display among all classes. So, on to the stitches used. Stem stitch or outline stitch was widely used to create outlines or as a fill for shapes when worked side by side in rows. This made stem stitch an extremely versatile and well-used stitch, creating sinuous patterns and feathery lines. Split stitch is worked similarly to stem stitch, except rather than the needle emerging beside the previous stitch, it passes through the preceding stitch about a third of the way back into it. This is a very versatile stitch and can be used as an outline or filling stitch, giving extra dimension and texture to the design. It was also used to needle paint, blending shades of thread together. Running and double running stitch is that simple stitch we all began with when starting out to learn to embroider. Running stitch creates a series of short stitches leaving a gap in between each one, the same length as the stitch itself. When the end of the line is reached, the work is simply turned around and the gaps are filled in on the return journey, creating double running stitch. The closer together the stitches are worked, the stronger and more stable seams will be if used for garment construction. Extant medieval garments usually have between 8 to 12 stitches per inch and were also used as a basting stitch for garments or applique. This is a very simple yet effective decorative technique, especially for necklines and cuffs. 
black work incorporates double running stitch and when worked carefully the results on the back of the work are identical with that of the front. Very clever, simple and effective and if you change the colour of the thread on the return journey you get a very pretty effect too. Chain stitch, my absolute favourite. This is a slightly more complex stitch to work where a loop is created then secured by the next loop or stitch. It's a beautifully textural stitch used for outlines or to fill areas of a design quickly. French knots were used for texture and were a popular choice usually seen portraying hair. Surface couching is a simple technique where a thread is brought to the surface of the work and laid onto the fabric. Using another thread in an either a matching or contrasting colour, a series of small stitches are made across the main thread. This can be used as an outline or fill stitch and further design effects can be created where the couching stitches are worked. For instance, they can be staggered, creating a brick-like effect. They can be lined up or they can create valleys and peaks. This is the commonest method for working metallic threads and is worked in a frame under tension to ensure the couch thread remains smooth and it's often used to fill backgrounds. An older version of couching is underside couching, producing a slightly different effect here the main thread is laid onto the fabric, however the actual couching thread comes up beside the main thread, passes over it and is brought to the back of the work through the same hole it came up from. And by tugging it ever so gently to pull the main th thread through just enough so that the couching thread disappears from the surface of the work. The thread used for this type of couching was usually plain linen because it remained completely out of sight on the back of the fabric. And this technique allowed easier movement in garments heavily stitched with metallic threads. Underside couching was popular in the 13th and 14th centuries with surface couching gradually superseding it. Ornoue is a shading technique whereby a variety of coloured silk threads are used in gold surface couching and by working the silk threads closer together the embroiderer has the ability to concentrate the colour or by choosing to space them wider allows more of the golden thread to shine through. It's a very old and beautiful technique, referenced as early as the 1380s in France, but it tends to be identified as a 15th century technique. Closter stitch or convent stitch is a form of self-couching, popular in creating graphic art with a needle. The purpose of this stitch is to cover a lot of ground with a solid colour, quickly and evenly where the couch thread and the couching thread are one and the same. Great for texture and pattern building. Laid trailing or overcast stitch was used to decorate cords, laid down creating dimension and texture. 
then whipped with a satin-like overcast stitch. Applique. I'm mesmerised by the jupon of the Black Prince Edward of Woodstock, 1330-1376, eldest son of King Edward III, yes, the sumptuary law king, uh, which was hanging above his effigy and tester at his tomb behind the choir of Canterbury Cathedral. Conserved in the 1950s, it has again undergone restoration and conservation and was on display at the v Museum in 2016. I believe a replica now hangs in its place in Canterbury Cathedral. Made of thick linen, the Black Prince's jupon was covered with wool padding together with alternating red and blue velvet panels and appliqued with fleur-de-lis embroidered with gilt thread onto the blue panels representing France and heraldic lions also worked in gilt thread onto the red panels representing England. Don't you just love that English-French rivalry? <laughs> now, he would have worn this garment under his armour. This applique technique also became a well-known time-saving device for many an embroiderer, along with the use of pricked parchment or paper patterns, which could be used and reused any number of times, allowing a number of embroiderers to work identical pieces, which could, could then be applied onto the ground fabric of a garment or hanging. It also helped alleviate the challenges caused by trying to stitch into a cloth-like velvet, which has a hefty nap or pile. So the design was worked onto a manageable ground fabric first, something like linen, and then stitched onto the velvet. Clever. They were clever. This technique was used for decorative motifs of livery badges and heraldic arms, making a single, bold, visible statement by the wearer, such as the Black Princess Jupon mentioned earlier. Brick stitch consists of alternating long and short stitches, with each succeeding row consisting of only long stitches until the last row, which is again worked in alternating long and short stitches. All stitches lie parallel to each other and the long stitches could be the same length, the short stitches being half as long. This stitch can be worked packed tightly together so that no ground fabric shows through or they can be worked with a slight gap in between creating a more light and airy effect. This works well as a fill for backgrounds or rectangular areas but doesn't suit curves all that easily. Long and short stitch is a variation of brick stitch and was well used in medieval embroidery. However, they do not stay strictly parallel and can fan out to fill the design of an area. Extra stitches may be required as needed to fill the design area and this stitch may be used for needle painting, creating texture and blending shades. But it was eventually replaced by split stitch as the preferred fill stitch. Satin stitch. Now this is one stitch I always have trouble with. 
It's worked by bringing the needle to the surface on the left side of the design, then laying the thread across the design area and bringing the needle through to the back on the right side of the design. Bring the needle back up on the uh, beside the previous stitch so no ground fabric is showing and repeat until the design area is completely covered. The back of the work will be covered as fully as the front, but care needs to be taken with tension here to ensure that, ensure that the stitches lie flat and do not flop or pucker the fabric. Mm -hmm, that's what I do. It's best worked in a tensioned frame to remedy this. I wish it would remedy mine. <laughs> A raised satin stitch is worked over padding of either chain or brick stitch with the satin stitch worked directly over the top of them. This also helps maintain an even tension while stitching and these padding or under stitches will not show in the finished work. Bayer stitch is an Anglo-Saxon variation of laid work and was used in the Bayer tapestry after which it was named. It's a surprisingly easy technique where, for reasons of economy, threads are laid across the surface of the fabric, then held down with another laid thread and a couching stitch. The use of a frame is essential in this technique as the threads require an even tension and is best worked on a medium weight, fairly closely woven fabric. An underlayer of fine cotton helps make working the stitch close together a lot easier. Traditionally, shapes were outlined with a variation of stem stitch, usually worked before filling the Bayeux stitch, and curves could be worked in sections. An altar valve from Leuven, northern Germany, dating from the uh, 1300s, shows a variant of herringbone stitch where several rows are set one above the other and plaited one with the others. These plaited stitches only show on the surface of the fabric with only a few short stitches penetrating the ground fabric. So again, we see an embroidery stitch being worked to save the pre precious thread, not wasting it unseen on the back of the work. I really want to emphasise here that embroidery was employed right across the medieval world as too many sources seem to focus upon English and only some European work. According to a paper written by Heather Devino, satin stitch dates from the Shang Dynasty in China, 1523 to 1027 BCE, with applique and silverwork discovered in Mongolia dating from the Shu Dynasty, the 6th century BCE. Textiles from Han Dynasty tombs were embroidered with satin stitch, Ping, Peking Knot, Da Zi, also called seed stitch or forbidden stitch, because in the 1940s women were thought to be going blind from their extensive use of it. Chain stitch, Suo, and couching, Ding, also known as nail stitch. Applique, buttonhole, net stitch, pine needle stitch and quilting stitch were also used during the hand dynasty. 
no new stitches appeared in China until, until the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644, while counted stitches such as Florentine and Petty Point came into use during the Qing Dynasty, 1644 to 1912. The Viking era saw embroidery stitches used more as a seam finishing technique rather than for their decorative aesthetic. When they did use them as a decorative stitch, these included stem, back, herringbone, van dyke, blanket, couching and chain stitch. So from the earliest confirmed examples of decorative embroidery, we see a form or variation of many of the stitches we've covered here today. From Bronze Age man to Egypt in the Byzantine Empire to China and India, the Middle Ages was a time of flowering for embroidery where outline stitching was used to create forms and figures with fill stitches saturating those areas with colour and texture. The 7th century Merovingian Queen Batilda was buried in a simple white shift stitched with rows of necklaces and several brooches supposed to imitate her precious jewellery which she said to have donated to the church. 10th century Danish embroideries from Mammon used stem and herringbone stitch creating bands of animal figures, leaves and human faces. Then we have the richness of gold and its ability to fascinate as well as its failure to oxidise. Early embroiderers found a way to utilise this precious metal, making it into a thread able to be worked into embroidery, with the earliest confirmed use from the tomb of another Merovingian queen, Anagunde, from the 6th century BC. The Masek embroideries from the late 8th to the early 9th centuries in Belgium used couch gold thread, as did the stole and maniple of St Cuthbert in England. Then we have the magnificent rendition of the Battle of Hastings, forever captured in time through emotive embroidered cartoon strips depicting this life-changing historical event in the Bayeux Tapestry. The art of embroidery was also of great significance in the medieval Islamic world, where it was known as Craft of the Two Hands, coined by a Turkish traveller. What a beautiful term to describe embroidery so perfectly. India, in particular, has an extremely rich tradition of embroidery, with almost every region specialising in its own embroidery type, from the Ari work of Kashmir using a specialised hooked needle, Banjara work involving the extensive use of mirrors, beadwork and coins. Chikankari work practised in Lucknow using white thread on white cloth and cantha work from Bengal utilising a densely worked running stitch creating intricate motives and patterns in a narrative embroidery to name but a few. These are the stitches of everyday life right across the medieval world 
and what a rich legacy they have given to the world of art and embroidery. A magnificent journey and a fascinating time for the art of the needle and the embroidery aesthetic overall. Again, my thanks to you for taking the time to listen today. I wish you all a very happy and safe Christmas and look forward to your company here at the Stitch Safari podcast in 2021. Don't forget to visit the Stitch Safari website, stitchsafari.com or head on over to the Stitch Safari podcast Facebook page where I post interesting features from time to time. I hope you'll join me for the next episode on our Stitch Safari. And until then, I'll be immersed in yet another book about that magnificent embroidery, the Bayer Tapestry. I adore it. Okay, till then, bye for now. <music>